This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, one of America's foremost manufacturers of premium knives. Case Knives have been treasured items that have been passed down to my family for generations. So put down the phone, shut off the TV, and go out and get your hands dirty and build something. Keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. Hey, you're listening to Shaun of the South Live, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich. That music here behind me is the Sweetwater String Bank. be okay if it rains today and all those dark clouds stay It'll be okay if it rains today as long as you're there with me I can weather each passing storm no matter what they bring I can weather each passing storm as long as you're there with me I've been out on my own So I've seen just how it goes Now I know just what I have to lose If we have to, we'll move away And leave everything behind If we have to, we'll move away As long as you're there with me So I've seen just how it goes Now I know just what I have to lose I can pull through my darkest days When nothing goes my way I can pull through my darkest days As long as you're there with me I went to the doctor a few days ago. The doctor's office is way out in the sticks. It's a small strip mall with businesses on each side of it, which have been there since the earth cooled. There's a frame shop right next door run by a man named Mr. Tobert. On the other side is a small cafe. 
It's the kind of cafe that serves the kind of food that the doctor will tell you not to eat. Which is why most people who exit the doctor's office end up going straight into that cafe. Because once the doctor's told you you're not supposed to eat them, you suddenly develop a strong craving for high cholesterol foods. I sat in this doctor's office. You will not find iPads here. You will not find touch screens or or any sorts of technology in the waiting room advertising pharmaceuticals and the side effects that will kill you before the pharmaceutical does any work in your body. No, this place is a place where you walk through the front door and a little bell rings. You go to the counter and Miss Janine is behind the counter and she has steel rim glasses and she smells like a pack of camel cigarettes and she says sign in and she says your first name and you sign in with a little pencil on a clipboard and you sit down in a waiting room it's charming it's charming and it's beautiful and it's it's a touch of the old days I fear that with our advancements in medical technology that we're forgetting the country doctor I fear we're getting farther and farther away. I sat in that waiting room and I was reading a magazine. It was the only kind of reading material I could find in that waiting room. The magazine was dated back to 1984 and it was an expose on failed attempts at space exploration by chimpanzees. (laughs) It was either that magazine or highlights for ages three to four. On my right side was a woman who was hacking and coughing up vital organs. And on my right side was a boy, maybe six or seven, with green snot smeared all over his upper lip. And his mother was beside him. He was blowing his nose. The snot just kept coming. He was a snot factory. (laughs) I don't like doctor's offices. I just don't. There are a few things in my life which I can pinpoint that I do not like. The list is a short one. I don't like snakes, spiders, real estate agents who use my first name too often, (laughs) and I don't like doctor's offices. I like doctors, I love modern medicine, but there is something about the experience of going to the doctor that makes the orifices of my body tighten up. (laughs) When I sit in a doctor's office, I think irrational thoughts. My blood pressure gets high. And I start to wonder how my obituary will read and who's going to write it and what picture will they use. God forbid they use my driver's license photo. And God forbid some man write my obituary who listens to classical music instead of Willie Nelson. I tried to calm myself down. I tried to think happy, positive thoughts. I listened to the music overhead. It was Conway Twitty singing, I'm lying here beside her with Linda on my mind. My mother loved Conway Twitty. In fact, I believe this exact song is what got her kicked out of the women's Bible study group long, long ago. She rolled up and her blazer windows were down and coming through the stereo system was Conway Twitty singing his masterpiece about marital infidelity. And the women who were walking into Bible study with their hats and their white gloves and little handbags looked at her with a look that could kill small albino mice. (laughs) And I tried to calm myself thinking about 
the old days, instead of thinking about what I wanted my headstone to read, my breathing was getting a little faster, and a woman finally came to the door, Miss Janine, with her little steel-rimmed glasses. She said, you can come on back, Sean. And I stood, and I walked back into the fifth circle of hell. She led me to a little exam room. The exam room is where she took my weight, where she measured my height. They sat me down on a vinyl bench, which was covered in wax paper. It felt like I was about to be made into a pastrami on rye and served hot. And while I waited, I started to think about the terrible experiences I have had at the doctor's office. My fear of doctors goes back a long, long way. When I was seven, my mother took me to visit the doctor because of a spider bite I had on my foot. And the spider bite was small, and it did not pose much of a problem. My mother was only being thorough. But she took me to the doctor, and I sat in that room, and I thought about the rise of spider-related deaths in the U.S. (laughs) And I started to breathe fast, and my vision got a little dim, and I, I felt sick to my stomach. And the doctor came in. He was a small man who looked like Phil Donahue. And he looked down at me, and I could only focus on the color of his coat, which was pure white. I don't like white coats. And he had his assistant with him, and her name was Linda. I'll never forget her. He and Linda looked at my little sore on my ankle, and he said, Hmm. That word is a godless word. To me, it's one of the most terrifying words in the English language. Second only to, hello, sir, we're with the Watchtower Society. Do you have a free moment? (laughs) The word, hmm, precedes terrible, terrible things. Medical things. Big, long, triple-syllable words, quadruple-syllable words, which end in osis and itis. And they are basically a death sentence. If a doctor sees you and everything is fine, he doesn't say, hmm. He doesn't say anything at all. He takes a deep breath and he smiles and he pats you on the back and you get a lollipop and you go eat eggs and bacon for breakfast. But this man was saying, hmm, to a seven-year-old. And my mother swears his very next words were, this isn't a big problem. All we've got to do is drain the sore. But I swear to God, after all these years, even to this day, that I heard him say, Linda, get me the hacksaw. (laughs) Doesn't matter what he said, because after he said it, the lights went out in Georgia and I passed out. I passed out, and the last thing I remember is waking up in a hospital gown with Phil Donahue standing over me, petting my hair, saying, you have white coat phobia, son. White coat phobia, it's a real thing. It means you're afraid of doctors. When I was 10 years old, I went to the dentist. This man walked in, and he was, he was old, and he smelled like a chain-smoking billy goat cooking oyster stew. <laughs> and he had this oversized fish hook in his hand, and he was picking at my teeth, and he was wearing a coat of pure white. Pure white and white latex gloves and while he picked at my teeth there was the sound that it was making on my skull that was was enough to make a man want to puke and I, I caught a glimpse of his white latex glove and it was covered in my own blood and then he fired up a piece of machinery which was handheld that sounded like it could cut Japanese steel and I 
went down under the power. I woke up and the man was standing over me with two assistants and his wife. He was gently slapping my cheek and he said, stay with me, stay with me. I was the first patient to ever faint in that office. They hung my picture on his wall in the waiting room. When I was 20 years old, I worked for a landscaping company, and I I manned a commercial lawnmower. One day while I was mowing, some flying debris hit me in my eyes. It wasn't anything serious, but the next few days I had blurry vision. I had to go to the eye doctor to get it looked at. My boss was insistent. I went to the eye doctor. The man came to look at me. He shined a light in my eyes, and he said, Hmm. And I said, what is it, Doc? Am I going to pull through? He said, well, I'm going to tell you the good news and the bad news, but I'll give you the bad news first. The worst case scenario is if what hit you in your eye was a piece of wood, it could be fungal, the infection that you're suffering from right now. And if it is fungal, there's a possibility that you could go blind. The first thing that happened to me was the room got very, very dark, and I passed out. (laughs) When I woke up, my shirt was off. I had suction cups taped to my chest, and that eye doctor said, I've never had anyone faint on me before. (laughs) Well, there's a first time for everything. It's true, I don't like being at the doctor's. I just don't. I sat in that waiting room, grown man, thinking to myself about life and how far I've come. I sat on that wax paper and I looked at the wall. There was a poster which outlined the five warning signs of Bavarian swine flu. (laughs) The five symptoms were fever, nausea, headache, trouble breathing, and cold sweats. I was developing four out of five of the symptoms right then and there. And while I was thinking about these terrible things which would follow, a man walked into the room. He was the nurse, a nurse assistant for the doctor. He said, I'll be taking your your vital signs before the doctor comes to see you. She's having a real busy day. He held out his hand and he introduced himself. We shook hands. He had silver hair. He was tall, big ears, a long, skinny neck. He was kind. And we got to talking about things. I think he sensed how nervous I was. He put a blood pressure cuff around my arm. And he was looking at the numbers. And I asked him how he had gotten into the nursing field. He said, oh, well, that's a long story. He said, my mother gave me away when I was two years old. Two years old, I was given away by a mother who had a drug addiction. He says, I only have a a small memory of her. It's a short, short memory of me in her arms in the back seat of a car. And I can hear a radio playing and I can see sunlight, but but that's it. I I can't remember anything else. My mother gave me to my aunt. And my aunt gave me to the foster care system when I was just a kid. And I was five years old when my aunt gave me up. She had more addictions than my mother did. It's a long, long story. He said, well, I grew up in a group home, you see. 
A group home is a glorified orphanage. You don't want to find yourself in a group home. It's the kind of place where you get three square meals a day and a bed. And that's about it. Things like love and encouragement and hope, they run thin at group homes. He said, but I was very lucky to live in a group home. Don't get me wrong. Very lucky. I was a sickly kid. Yeah, I was a sickly kid, and I just, I just didn't have a strong immune system. I don't know why. Seemed like I was always fighting something. And it was hard fighting these illnesses as a child without your mother, you know. Today I, I treat a lot of people and they come in here, little kids, and they got their mother with them, their father. And the mother's always rubbing on their head or rubbing on their back saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But I didn't have that. No, I grew up without anybody telling me it was going to be okay. So sometimes I wondered if it ever would. When I was 13, I got pneumonia so bad I was hospital bound. I was in there for a few weeks. Doctor said if it got too bad, it could kill me. I was so scared. I was so scared. Most, most nights I'd look out the window at the stars from my hospital bed. And I was in that room all by myself. I didn't always have a guardian with me. I'd look at them stars and I'd think to myself, I wonder if I'm going to survive this. And then I'd wonder to myself, who cares if I don't? I don't have anybody who's counting on me to keep living. All I am is a burden to people. What difference does it make if the world has to deal with one less foster kid? He said, I'd think these things while I looked at the stars and the moon, and I'd fall asleep, and I told God, it's fine. You want to take me? That's fine. But there was this night shift nurse who used to come in. She was a good woman. Oh, sweet, sweet woman. She came in one night and she, she started talking to me like I was her own kid. See, see, foster parents don't talk to you like they're, they're your parents and you're their kid. They talk to you like you're a number. Because they see so many children day after day after day that you're part of their job. Now, this woman treated me like I was her, her son. And she told me stories. She was good at telling stories. She told me a story about her grandmother. I will never forget it. She said, do you know that my grandmother was raised in an orphanage back in the Great Depression? She said, my grandmother grew up wearing rags for clothes. Sometimes the, the workers would bring them feed sacks. And they would cut the feed sacks open and bleach them to make them a light colored and they would make clothes out of these sacks. They ate institutional food and they slept in steel institutional beds and rooms full of kids and when one kid got sick the entire orphanage got sick. And so she was raised in the system and never adopted. But she got married one day. It didn't take but a few days for that girl to inherit a new grandfather, a new grandmother, a new mom, a new dad, new aunts and uncles and cousins, brothers and sisters. And when she died, that woman 
was not lonely. She was a she was a grandmother of 14 grandkids. 14. And when that nurse finished telling me that story, she pet my head and she said, you know, one day you're going to have a big family. I don't know how, but it will happen. And she left me and I, I didn't even sleep that night. I just looked at them stars at that window and I wondered what my family would look like. He recovered from his pneumonia, but it did leave a scar on him. He developed asthma and a few other health problems. By the time he was 20 years old, not a single person in the world seemed to even care about his birthday. And on his birthday, on his birthday, he felt just as alone as he had ever felt before. And it was that day that he met a girl on his birthday. She was a beautiful, tall girl, a girl with a, with a voice like an angel and eyes that were just pure and honest and they looked right through you. She was a kind hearted girl and she was way out of his league, he said. But it didn't matter because she seemed to like him. They met at a Mexican restaurant one night. He spent money he didn't have on clothes that he could not afford and he got to that restaurant 40 minutes early and he sat and he just waited for her. He looked at that candle on the table in a red glass container. He watched the flame flicker and he waited she walked in and she looked just as lovely as ever he realized he was overdressed for his date he stood and he pulled out a chair for her and he helped her slide it back toward the table he'd seen that on TV once he said and they talked and they laughed and they had the best night of their life and in that one night he had his first date his first kiss and it was the first time he ever felt like he mattered to another living being And it did something to him. It made him want to do things with his life. And it was in the following year that he noticed his asthma symptoms began to dissipate until his asthma had finally just gone away. And he quit using the inhalers that the doctors had given him and he felt like a strong, healthy man. Oh, what a little love can do. He took college classes and aced them with straight A's. He enrolled in nursing school, and he was a good student. And he burned through his time doing clinicals like a man with his hair on fire. He has a good life. He inherited a big family. She comes from a large family. He has three children, and as of last May, he's got a granddaughter. A granddaughter. It's not a perfect family, don't get me wrong. But by God, it is beautiful. When he finished taking my temperature, when he finished taking my pulse, he said, you know, that nurse that night, long, long ago, I think about her all the time. I think about what she gave me that night. She gave me hope. Hope. And all my life, I have needed hope. And at this age, I realize that all anybody needs in this life is just a little bit of hope. Hope that even when things aren't going good, that they might be going a little bit better in the near future.
He said, the way I like to think about it is it's gasoline for life. Huh. Gasoline. I shook his hand and I watched him walk out of that doctor's office and I have to tell you, I felt a whole lot better about my chances of survival <laughs> after our conversation. I had a visit with the doctor. It was a good one. She, she told me I had nothing to worry about. I was in good health. She patted me on the back. She gave me a lollipop. I walked out that doctor's office and I walked onto the sidewalk toward that cafe that serves food that my doctor just instructed me not to eat. I sat down and I ordered an order of bacon, an order of sausage, three eggs over medium deep fried in bacon grease, an order of toast, an order of hash browns, and a big, big glass of orange juice and a cup of coffee. The waitress said, my God, you must be hungry today. I said, no, ma'am, but I feel lucky. I do. I feel so, so lucky. She said, why? I said, because I have just finished a doctor's appointment and I did not faint. Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a real pleasure. Hope you join us next week. That music heard behind me today is the Sweetwater String Band. Scott Roberts, Jeff Medway, Patrick Ferguson, and David Hubner on the cello. To find more of their music, you can visit sweetwaterstringband.com. Or you can find the music on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, or anywhere else you can think of. Look for their new album, At Night. Find anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouth.com. And while you're there, I hope you drop me a line because I love to hear from my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, procrastination is never a bad thing. You always have something to look forward to tomorrow, and you have nothing to do today. Adios. I found my